the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back this Monday, November 22nd, 2021. As we do every Monday, we are joined by Brandon J. Weikert. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, free to you. And he is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Brandon, happy Monday. How are you? Uh, you know, uh, the kids are off this whole week, and so now I'm on the hook for uh, figuring out how to entertain them all day. It's been great, though. <laughs> you don't want to play them archives of the show? <laughs> well, I, they did uh, They did want to hear an interview because they, I was on TV the other day. So oh. My oldest was, <laughs> oldest was very fascinated by that. Of course, she saw fit to remind everyone that I have a bald spot. So, uh, you know. <laughs> they give and they take, don't they? Yes, yeah. They yes. give and they take. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, There's yeah. a lot to talk about. I think where I wanted to start, though, was kind of something interesting. I've been, um, I, I've just been kind of putting together here and there, having to do with China, Brandon. And oh, yeah. I noticed there was a panel discussion on. Uh, Peng Shui, if that's how you say it, the tennis player in China. There was a there was a yeah. panel discussion on CNN about her, and I think unbeknownst to CNN, they had the China feed in the lower right hand yes. corner that was showing that China was not broadcasting this yes. discussion. They would not allow CNN. I think it was purposeful. Yeah, you said, saw that, right? Yeah. yeah. This at the same time that the president of the United States held a virtual summit with the head of China, but at the same time that Fareed Zakaria of CNN last night did an in-depth analysis of who the president of China really is. And it seems to me that we could use, speaking of, uh, speaking of TV uh, personnel, we could use a little bit more of what William Buckley said about meetings with Soviet premiers throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, which was, why in the hell do we trust them to tell the truth in the first place when we interview them or meet with them? Right. Right. And I get a little bit of that out of CNN when I hear Fareed Zakaria talking about how wise the president of China is and how he doesn't really want to stir things up. I get a little worried about that when I see... I guess true to type, him highlighting an interview with Henry Kissinger, who thinks Taiwan has nothing to fear for at least 100 years. <laughs> None of this is really new, but a lot has been forgotten, it seems. Would you like to weigh in yeah. on some of this? Uh, yeah. Well, um, Fareed Zakaria had one really good book in the early 2000s uh, about Frederick Jackson Turner, the turn of the 20th century historian. Um, he's most known, of course, for the post-American world, which in and of itself wasn't bad. But let's face it, he's been wrong on most of his major foreign policy pronouncements. Remember, this was a guy, like most of the people in his class, 
This was a guy who thought for sure that Iraq would go swimmingly and we would, in fact, be greeted as liberators. Uh, this was a guy who supported the Iraq war right up until the rest of the political class turned against it. And, of course, then he abandoned all the people on the right that he had been cultivating and became a suddenly born-again uh, leftist uh, to save his television career. So I don't put much stock in what he says. This is to say nothing of the accusations of plagiarism that have plagued his entire career. I forgot about um, that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, is it, yeah. And so I don't really put much stock in what he has to say. Um, Kissinger, well, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, first of all, he his entire business model literally is based in China, so yeah. he's not going to want to stir the pot there. Uh, and even if there, and I think he is being somewhat sincere because this was a guy who is most famous for leading the outreach effort to China yeah. in the 70s, yeah. and it was a masterful stroke in the context of the moment. But as Nixon said in 1979 to Jimmy Carter. He made it clear. Bruce Hershenson, recently deceased, wrote a great book called Taiwan, the Threatened Democracy, in which he went to the Nixon Arch presidential archives and unearthed this incredible exchange between what was, who was then former President Nixon with then current President Jimmy Carter when they were discussing how to go about uh, the next round of Chinese-American relations. And Nixon was saying to Carter, I will not attack you publicly, but I think it is a grave mistake on your part to think in any way that I, as president, was willing to make a permanent long-term deal with China and effectively, you know, screw over Taiwan. That was never my intention when I opened uh, up relations with China. It was a short-term gambit designed to, to, to rejigger the geopolitical uh, uh, chessboard at the time against the Soviet Union, who under Brezhnev, after Vietnam, was riding high. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this, you know, we've, we've kind of typical D.C. where the bureaucracy just sort of falls into this inertia where they just keep going with something that was never meant to be continued on with. Uh, Kissinger is just a product of his time, as well as the fact he's financially incentivized to be pro-China. I would not be listening to these people when it comes to Chinese intentions, I would not. They, their, their judgment is askew, shall we say. And vested in things that lead to As oppression in China, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, which, which I have to say made me all the, all the, all the less impressed, quite frankly, with, with, with Joe Biden even having a virtual summit <laughs> with, uh, with yeah. the head, with Xi Jinping. Because, again, I don't know why we have any reason to trust what this man says. This is not a man who lets his own people find and discover the right. truth through the Internet. Well, this is a man who turns on his own friends. Yeah. I mean, he's purged half of the people who helped him get to power okay. in China. So, so uh, I mean— Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, when it comes to Biden, like Kissinger, he, too, is a product of his time. Biden since the late 70s in the Senate has long supported and championed China as America's most favored trading partner. In 2000, he was the lead figure in the Senate in making sure the Senate got uh, or ratified uh, China as our most favored trading partner in terms of their admission to the World Trade Organization. So Biden is also a product of his time. You and I have spoken about this before. Our friend David Goldman, who I'm honored to know and I write with at the Asia Times, 
He's been banging on about how you cannot listen to what Biden's saying publicly. He's going to pivot at some point and try to do a major economic and trade deal. And he's right. This is the beginning. This summit is the beginning of Biden pivoting away from the hawks in his own administration, like Jake Sullivan and Kirk Campbell, and toward the John Kerry, Susan Rice wing, who want engagement, not just to ameliorate all of our economic woes with our issues with uh, demand and supply chain uh, crises, but he also wants, as I've been writing about at Real Clear World, he wants the mother of all global warming deals. And the only way he's going to get that from Xi is basically if he gives the store away, which is what we're seeing happen in real time before our eyes. I found it kind of interesting that in years past, when two world leaders met, virtually or otherwise, it was dominating news. I mean, you remember the, yeah. the meetings Reagan had with Gorbachev. Well, remember and, Trump and, and Putin? And Trump and Putin, of course. It seemed like Friday kind of came and went Maybe it was the weekend cycle, but it seemed like it kind of came and went without well, it was a lot of discussion except from people like you. I'm glad. Right. Right. Well, it was time for the weekend cycle. I mean, this thing was, was stage managed, just like every aspect of Biden since he announced his candidacy for the presidency. This was the guy who hid in his basement. COVID has been Biden's best friend. The reason they did the virtual summit was because supposedly of COVID. This, this has been his greatest friend. He's a public figure, Biden, but yet he cannot handle himself in public. His handlers know that. So they find these very innovative ways to hide him from public scrutiny. And China's more than happy to do that because China hates public scrutiny in general. Mm -hmm. So they're happy to you know, abide by that. And plus, they know they can run over Biden and his team. And they did. There's a very interesting picture. Uh, Biden sitting in front of the Chinese and American flags behind him in the White House, looking with this boyish grin lovingly at Xi Jinping. As Xi Jinping looks like this, this coyote about to eat his prey, he knows he's got Biden, or at least that's the image that they're sharing on Xinhua and in the other Chinese uh, uh, propaganda outlets, where it just looks like China's leader is devouring a completely addled American leader. And the, the, the power of the image is on display. China looks like the rising power, coupled with all the images of the last six months of American foreign policy and economic failures under Biden. China looks like the ascendant power. We look like the declining power. Let me do this. I appreciate that, Brandon. Let me do this. Let me take the commercial break, come back and yeah. talk to you about your most recent piece as if you think China's the, if, in case you think China's the only thing to worry about. Your most recent <laughs> piece at the Asian Times gets us into Russia as well. I'm yeah, Seth Liebson. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon J. Weikert of the Weikert Report, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. We will be right back. Brandon J. Weikert, he is the publisher of the Weikert Report, the author of Winning Space. And uh, I want to talk to him about uh, what he recently wrote in the Asia Times regarding Russia checkmating uh, the United States and Europe. And just also uh, identify that we're going to talk a little bit later about some interesting um, theories that you don't hear uh, much about. Um, they're not actually theories. What you hear mostly are theories. We're going to talk about some inter interesting facts that collide with those theories regarding the um, the anniversary or at least the commemoration of the JFK assassination. Brandon, is Russia about to checkmate the U.S. and Europe? 
Yes. Yes. Yes, it's going to. Now, um, now, as a, as as a really good attorney, courtroom attorney, you, uh, you you did what I advised you. Don't answer beyond the question. But now, as a follow up, <laughs> let me say, please explain. <laughs> yes. Well, um, the the whole point is Russia has, like China and Iran to a lesser extent, has figured out that you can't take on the West, led by the United States, in a direct. You can't go in and fight fairly because you're going to lose unless you want to go into nuclear war. And really, it's, it's not yet. They're not yet wanting to go to that apocalyptic level. So they do this asymmetrical warfare, the, 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 the doctrine that basically says we're, we're a smaller regional player, but we've got some strength. Uh, and so we're going to put, put those strengths against America's weaknesses, specific weaknesses. And one of the things that they've been working on in Russia is Vladimir Putin, absolutely wants to make Russia great again. And part of making Russia great again is reconstituting the Russian Empire of old. Now, it cannot be like the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire that preceded it exactly. It has to be something that is fitting in the 21st century. So, since 2010, he has tried to get the Eurasian Economic Union, which is a coalition uh, of Central Asian former Soviet states and former Soviet states in Eastern Europe. He has tried to get them to pull together, led by Russia, and uh, create a counterweight, not just to the European Union, but also to China's budding uh, Belt and Road Initiative. <laughs> and Ukraine is the linchpin, as it has always been for Russia. And Ukraine, at least half of it, does not want to go into Russia's orbit. The western side of Ukraine, Kiev, the capital, wants to be part of the European side of, of things. They don't want to be back in Russia's orbit. And so the bottom line is that's a problem because Russia can't get its Europe, Eurasian uh, economic union going without Ukraine. And so they have worked since 2014 to slowly but surely cleave, like a salami slice, Cleave little bits of Ukraine that have Russian citizens in them, like Crimea, like eastern Ukraine now, the Donbass. And they're trying to slowly annex those portions and to prevent the initiation of full-scale war with NATO and the West. Uh, and so they take these long timescales to complete these objectives. They know the Americans are going to get distracted. They know that our political system at most will only have a president for eight years. So they, they, they have this ability to outlast the Americans, and they just slowly but surely do this information, the cyber warfare. They just recently almost destroyed the International Space Station with an anti-satellite weapon test as a sign, hey, America, keep out of what we're about to do in Ukraine. Um, so, so this whole thing uh, in Ukraine has, that's been going on since at least 2014 is part of a longer-range geopolitical strategy on the part of, of Putin, which is he needs to get Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe, the old Soviet sphere, back under Russian control, not just to keep the Americans out of his backyard, but also to prove, to build, rather, a counterbalance to China's rising power to his east. He's cooperating with China, but he wants to do so from a position of strength. And on its own, Russia is not in a position of strength to have a truly equitable cooperative framework with China. 
So he needs Ukraine. He needs that Eurasian Economic Union to be built. But he has to do it slowly because at least half of Ukraine wants to stay in Europe, wants to be part of the American-led world order, and he can't have that, Putin. By the way, um, the piece you wrote, I want to urge people to read it, is Russia about to checkmate U.S. and Europe, Asia Times. It's a long piece. I know it's it's a a long long piece, piece, but the reason I want to urge people to read it is it's got some fascinatingly good history in there, history that happened within our lifetimes that I don't think most people even still remember. Like or about Clinton? Exactly Clinton where 94? I was going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The weakness of the Ukraine. Ukraine. When did we go from the Ukraine to Ukraine? I guess after the Soviet yeah. Union broke up. Yeah, I guess. The, yeah, the weakness of Ukraine now and its ability to stand up to Russia is directly attributable to the Bill Clinton administration. Yeah. I, please explain. Well, basically, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and pulled out of Ukraine and many other, you know, Eastern European states, those countries became independent. But the, the Russians, the Soviets, left a lot of military technology behind. Specifically in Ukraine, they left behind the third largest nuclear weapons arsenal in the world at the time. Now, these weapons were mostly old, uh, but the Bill Clinton administration in 1994, December of 94, Rather than say, you know, we might have to worry about a resurgent Russia one day, uh, rather than saying that, they just assumed that Russia was no more, that there would be no more threat ever again from Russia, that it would be just this kind of failed state in perpetuity. And so the goal at the time, the priority was to denuclearize uh, all nations that were not controlled by the Americans. And so they were concerned, understandably, of loose nukes uh, getting into the hands of terrorists and non-state actors or in the rogue states, uh, but they, it was a short-sighted model because what they did was they, they, they got the Ukrainians to, you know, with, with begrudgingly to give up this nuclear weapons arsenal because the Ukrainians were On saying, a promise, hey, right? We, on a Munich-type yeah, promise. On a, on, a new, on a promise that if the Russians, and the Bill Clinton never thought the Russians would be a threat ever again. Right, he's dealing he with said, Boris hey. Yeltsin at this point, isn't he? Right, yeah. and he said, yeah. hey, if by some chance Russia ever does try to invade, the United States and NATO will, will ensure Ukrainian sovereignty with a military guarantee as long as you give up those nukes. And the Ukrainians said, great, let's do it. And they didn't realize that, first of all, there was no way we were ever going to be able to, to live up to that promise. And by the way, Clinton, supposedly a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford, didn't know his, his European history well enough to know similar guarantees at the start of World War One. Uh, between uh, the, the great powers at the time and these smaller states in, in, in the Baltics actually triggered the First World War that led to the destruction of the European-led world order. And something similar may be happening today with this stupid Clinton-era agreement where we guarantee Ukrainian sovereignty against a Russian invasion. All we had to do was modernize that nuclear weapons arsenal that the Russians were so kind to leave behind and trust the democratic Ukraine to say, hey, they're going to protect themselves. The presence alone of that nuclear weapons arsenal would have prevented Russia from ever trying to invade any part of Ukraine ever again. But because we pulled those systems out, now the Russians since 2014 have slowly been taking that and undermining the American-led European order. And they're going to checkmate us in Ukraine, and they probably will in the larger part of Europe. Because remember, now Europe's dependent on Russian natural gas. That's right. That's right. Germany, to be sure, the rest of Europe to follow. 
and NATO has um, has been ruined. All right. Can we talk about the JFK assassination when we come back and what it said to America and Mm -hmm. what liberalism has done with it? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. And um, Brandon writes on, on, on any number of issues. Uh, as many of you know, we, do them for, we use them uh, here often for foreign policy, but uh, we occasionally steer into domestic and cultural policy as well, in which he is no less of an expert. Brandon, on one of the breaks, you and I were just kind of reflecting on the assassination and obviously the decades-long fallout from the assassination of John Kennedy, and we both ended up kind of saying something that you don't hear a lot about in the news anymore, Um, and you said everything in America got really noticeably worse since November 22nd, 1963. There's a famous story that I never quite understood. You don't have to explain it to me, but it kind of sets the tone of what I'm talking about, that... um, Mary Mary McCrory, who was a, a Washington Post columnist, said to Pat Moynihan after Kennedy was killed, she said, we'll never laugh again. And Moynihan said, we'll laugh again. We'll just never be young again. And um, it, it just goes to the pregnancy of how people were feeling about what an astounding moment that was on November 22nd. But it's been misused by the culture and the left, hasn't it, sir? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, JFK was far more conservative um, then uh, JFK was far more conservative than people realized, was far more conservative than people realized, and he um, he definitely would not be a beloved Democrat today, not just because of the conservatives, conservatism and anti-communism, but because of, you know, the whole Me Too thing. Um, but and tax cuts. Um, Don't forget tax. And tax cuts. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Reagan directly attributed yep. his tax cuts to in, being inspired yep. by Kennedy. And yep. in fact, Kudlow, Larry Kudlow, wrote a wonderful book about four years ago, all about the history of JFK and Reagan and yep. how their tax cuts were so similar. But anyway, besides that, um, it also shows you that the left has misrepresented what happened. Uh, there's a lot of theory. But one thing we know is that Kennedy was not killed by a racist. Our friend James Pearson over at Claremont has done you know, yeoman's work proving that the, the narrative that was popular at the time, that's, been, that's really informed popular history, that was shepherded by the Kennedy family, specifically Jackie Kennedy, his wife, was that Kennedy died for civil rights. And and there's no doubt Kennedy did a lot for civil rights, Mm -hmm. but that is not why he was killed. The the two prevailing theories, the dominant theories, and Pearson believes the reason he was killed was because of of the Cuban uh, Castro, that he was killed by by agents working for Castro, basically. Now, it's more complicated than that, but that's basically what he theorizes. Well, he and the Warren Commission— and the Warren Commission. <laughs> the entirety uh, yes, of the Warren yes. Commission also uh, said and, that, and but that got buried. That got yes, buried. Yeah. And there's a wonder. That's right. And there's a wonderful other book. I think I can't remember the author now, but he's ex-CIA. He worked the Cuba desk for the CIA, and he in 2013 wrote a wonderful expose about some new evidence that surfaced of what um, Kennedy's killer 
uh, Oswald was doing in Mexico City right before he came back to the United States to murder Kennedy. Um, but, but whatever the case may be, the other, the other prevailing theory, of course, is that Kennedy was murdered by the deep state, that, that there was a, a, a military push, basically. He was, he was too unpredictable. He wanted to make peace, supposedly, uh, with the Soviet Union, or at least ratchet down the Cold War. He wanted to cut military spending. He wanted to end the Vietnam War, uh, whatever. Um, but but the fact is, Kennedy was not killed because of racism, nope. which is the Democrats' narrative. Right. He was not killed because of the civil rights or whatever. Or the far he right, the angry far right. right. That's what That's we kept right. hearing about, the That's angry exactly far right. right. And that well, it, it took to no time, by the way, after his That's death right. for the New York Times, James Reston. Well, that's right. And James The Reston Fareed Zakaria wrote, of his day. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And he, that's right. And he wrote, with the help of Jackie Kennedy, he, James Pearson documents how the first article, it's very similar to how today you always see whenever there's an issue pop up with race, you know, a, a, you know, a, a black person, uh, you know, commits a crime and he's hurt by the cops and suddenly it's society's fault yep. or it's yep. the police officer's fault. Right. But we never talk about the, the underlying crime that was being right. committed. The minutes, the days, um, the weeks, the months before. Right, right. yeah. And, and why the there was an arrest happened, warrant. Exactly. The same yeah. thing happened that James Reston started writing these articles about how Kennedy's death was, was not the fault of Oswald at all. It was our fault, mm-hmm. our love of guns, mm-hmm. our, love, our love of racism, our history of The John Birch Society, yeah. Right, right. And so when actually, fun fact, Oswald tried to kill right before JFK, he tried to murder... Uh, a full, retired Edwin Walker. General who, Edwin who Walker, the leader of the Birch Society. Yeah, Edwin right. Walker, the general, the Eisenhower general. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but, so the popular narrative about Kennedy. Oh, let me do this. Now, let me do this. I have to yeah. hit the quick break here. That's my bad. But let's pick up on this. This is a big topic. Just stay with me for a minute. Will you let me yeah. do the quick commercial break? Absolutely. And let's. We, we've laid out the narrative that has suffused popular culture anger, hate, right wing. Now we'll tell you the facts. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you thought that the right and conservatives were responsible for the assassination of John Kennedy, you can get that in any number of movies, any number of books. And you could have gotten a lot of that, frankly, in the 1960s from the chief political correspondent of the New York Times, like James Reston, to even Chief Justice Earl Warren before he became chairman of what would be known eponymously as the Warren Commission. They said he was killed by the climate of hate, his support of civil rights, and, of course, prejudice. None of that ended up being the case. Brandon, thanks for staying with us. Brandon Weikert is our Happy guest. Thanks here. for Yeah, you bet. Thanks for staying with us. You pointed out right before the break, it was first of all odd to that narrative that Lee Harvey Oswald, earlier in 1963, just a few months before he fired at John Kennedy, tried to kill Edwin Walker, who was, uh, who was the head of the John Birch Society in Texas, Dallas or Texas, I don't remember which, but a, a well-known right-winger. Um, you wouldn't think a right-winger would have assassinated or tried to assassinate another right-winger. But then more and more of the Oswald story became known, and I'll let you take it from there, sir. 
Well, well, basically, Oswald is a strange figure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was certainly a communist. He defected to the Soviet Union, and he was such a communist, he thought the Soviet Union was too boring. And so he became, you know, enamored of this third-world revolutionary, third-way communism, as represented by the likes of Fidel Castro. And he desperately strove to take part in the Cuban Revolution, couldn't really manage to do it. So he figured he might, after the Bay of Pigs and after the Cuban Missile Crisis, he figured he might figure out a way to help the Cuban Revolution survive by taking out the number one threat in America to the Cuban Revolution, which was John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the, the thesis of James Pearson's works. I highly recommend you have two books on it. Uh, and uh, I, I can't remember the names of them, but I read both of them. Camelot uh, and the Cultural re- Revolution. That's it, yes, yeah. yes. And they're wonderful. Now, uh, that is what I lean toward, is that it was clearly a communist conspiracy to take him out, and probably the reason that Johnson and the others didn't respond, uh, even though I think they know, I think the government deep down knows the truth, was because the only way to respond to the assassination of such a popular American president would have been a direct military strike against Soviet Union, which would have, of course, led to Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's pro- so that's one theory. Now, a colleague of mine, I'm not going to say who it is, uh, because he has not submitted the manuscript yet, he has done really interesting research, has gone to parts of the National Archive that no one has seen in decades. He has gotten his hands on some really interesting information, uh, has written a very compelling manuscript that indicates there may have been something to the claim that Kennedy was taken out by our own government. Okay. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily buy that. I have trouble buying that. Um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I certainly don't, you know, agree with, uh, you know, the, the, the left-wing interpretation that was po- popularized by that JFK film um, back in the 90s. But the gentleman that I know, the research he did is extremely interesting, and I hope the book gets published soon, uh, but I can't say any more about that. But certainly there is an alternative theory that does not, you know, say it was because America's racist you know, critical race theory type argument that says maybe there was something to this concern that Kennedy was trying to draw down uh, and make a more equitable arrangement with the Soviet Union. I don't know anything about that beyond what I've read in this manuscript. I will say that Pearson's work, in my opinion, is probably the best research that's in the public right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And certainly uh, we know that Kennedy's killer was a communist, an unapologetic communist. But he was this, this, this rabid ideologue that he was very good with guns. He was a former marksman in the Marine Corps. Uh, I suspect he may have been involved in some in, in wet works uh, for the U.S. intelligence services before he left. Um, I, 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 I don't see any reason to doubt, given what was going on geopolitically, that Oswald was, in fact, a communist trying to take out JFK before he got reelected, because let's face it, everybody knew JFK was going to win in a landslide. And once JFK was reelected, it was also pretty common knowledge that he and his brother Bobby were going to kill the Castro brothers within the first year of their administration. That was a, that was a fait accompli if they won re-election. And so it sort of makes sense that Oswald, a committed communist who was desperately trying to serve the Castro regime and also... The Soviet leader Khrushchev was deeply humiliated by the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, 
uh, would have wanted to see Kennedy go because the young the young man that Khrushchev believed would could be walked all over a Kennedy actually ended up showing you know Khrushchev the door uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's very believable, in fact, probable that actually Kennedy was killed by a communist conspiracy backed up by the highest levels in the Cuban regime as well as the Soviet Union, and that the U.S. government figured it out after the fact and probably covered it up because the only way that we could re- we could retaliate would be, you know, with total war against the Soviets, which would have, of course, ended everything. And for those who want something easy, they can, of course, read the Pearson book, but they can also go online and read the Warren Commission report on the chapter – uh, that I think is the most interesting uh, of that report, Chapter um, 7, about motives. Mm-hmm. It mentions yeah. and identifies communist ties of Lee Harvey Oswald yeah. over uh, over almost uh, almost over 60 times. And there was also a book in 2013, I want to say it was called Castro's Secret, mm-hmm. uh, and it was written by a retired Cuba specialist from the CIA uh, who wrote, who interviewed... Uh, multiple ex-Cuban defectors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this may be the same author, Brian Littell, I think. Yes, that's it. As the book you were talking about before, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. and I really was convinced by, because the tradecraft that he used and, and, and the people he talked to, you have to understand, Cuban intelligence, the DGI, is probably the most effective intelligence mm-hmm. operation in the Western Hemisphere, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. leagues ahead of our CIA mm-hmm. in many respects. Uh, and so the way that he was able to interview people who would have known what was going on during the, the, the Oswald days, the Kennedy assassination, uh, leads me to believe there's probably something to the conclusion that Oswald was a communist sympathizer, former agent, or a possible agent, and that he was trying to kill a direct threat, Kennedy, uh, who posed a direct threat to Castro. Let's face it, had Castro been killed uh, during the Kennedy administration, Cuba would have never limped on in its communist form. It would have eventually reverted to some form of either pro-Western autocracy like Bautista, or it would have reverted to an actual democracy, either of which would have been inimical to Soviet interests. Let me take the break and have you uh, weigh in on the last uh, segment here, brief though it will be, Brandon, on another aspect of Jim Pearson's thesis, which is the assassination and the revelations of all that you said kind of drove the left crazy in this country and changed the narrative about political violence. Can we just say a word or two on that when we come right back? Yeah, okay, great. Thank you. (laughs) I, I, I love spouting off theories that I haven't validated or verified with you. And then you say we're on the same page because we are, because we've read the same scholarship. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Brandon Weikert has been our guest this hour, as he is every Monday, and kind of combining a little international and social cultural history. We were talking about the JFK assassination and how the narratives changed so much after 1963 as the facts came out, as Brandon and I were reciting them for the past couple segments, it kind of drove the left crazy. This is a theory of Jim yeah. Pearson. Do you want to say something about that, Brandon? Yeah, well, it's very obvious. Before Kennedy's assassination, the left was very actually moderate compared to where it ended up in the late 60s, early 70s. The left loved America. The Democratic Party did. 
It represented moderation. It wanted to have a, the widest amount of liberty and prosperity conferred through capitalism, yes, with a social safety net, but through capitalism. All of that changed within five years mm -hmm. of the Kennedy assassination. You had this insane radicalization. Uh, there have been some documentaries done documenting how so-called community organizers, young college students after the, who were disenfranchised by the Kennedy assassination, left Berkeley and other what became left-wing universities and spent months and weeks on, on communes in, in Cuba and in Mexico. And then they would come back to the inner cities and they would become community organizers and try to agitate the populations there against the American system, and that this went on for decades, uh, and that these young people grew up into the, the elites that now run the country today, uh, and they came from a very anti-American, anti-capitalist mentality, and it can be spurred, as Pearson articulates and documents very well in his two books, it all starts with the Kennedy assassination and just sort of cascades out from there and creates this neo-communist movement in the United States. We're literally at these rallies in 68. Uh, you, in Chicago, for instance, you literally had uh, the young people protesting there, burning the cities down, repeating Pravda slogans. Mm -hmm. In fact, Gorbachev is quoted, I believe, in the first Pearson book when he was a younger agent working for the KGB. He's working for Andropov, who was this radical Soviet Union leader, uh, he, he quoted uh, Andropov, apparently, Gorbachev, I'm so happy to see my headlines in Pravda being repeated by the next generation of American kids. You know, that's where things went within five to six years of Kennedy's death. Without Kennedy's death, you wouldn't have had the disenfranchisement. You wouldn't have had the disillusionment. You probably wouldn't have had Vietnam play out the way it did. You probably would have had a better, stronger America if that man had gotten another term in the office. There you go. There you go. Brandon Weikert, thank you for everything. Thank you. Until next week. Hey, have a very happy Thanksgiving. And uh, what did you say you had? You were challenged with what to give the kids to watch. Have them watch Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving. That's as good yeah, as I it gets. Yeah, I think I might. Yeah, that's, that's good might. stuff. Yeah. All right, yeah. Brandon Weikert. Bless you, sir. We'll talk to you next Thank week. Thank you. All I right. am Seth Leibson. We will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.